So if you're like me and my family, you, uh, you mildly decorate for the seasons. You know what I mean by mildly decorate? It's kind of like that, it's kind of like that line between clueless and crazy, you know, just like a little, little touch, right? It shows like, I'm not a Scrooge, right? I know what's going on. I recognize it's Christmas. I'm also, I want to let people know I'm not insane. So I'm not going to, I'm not that guy that wipes Hobby Lobby out of lights every year when they're 80% off. I'm not that guy who's got that house is going to cause an accident, you know, in my neighborhood. It's kind of that line between clueless and crazy. So for us, we got the Christmas tree up. It's positioned in the, it's in the front room and you can kind of see it through the, the window there. And we got a wreath on our front door and, and, and throughout the house we have little, uh, we got little knickknacks. Uh, again, trying to find that balance between clueless and Clark Griswold. And, uh, so just a little, little touch. Um, so I'm not the one to go all out, but I love it when other people go all out, right? It's, it's cool for you to go all out. It's cool for me to look at your house. I just don't want to be that guy. And I love checking out all the lights. My kids, my kids love it even more, right? Um, so we have this, we have this uh, house down the street from us and it's just like glowing, crazy blue lights, uh, which the blue lights like really mess with me for some reason. Uh, the red and green ones and the white ones, not so much, but blue is like, holy cow. And so right down the street, there's this house and it's all decorated like uh, peanuts. So Charlie Brown and uh, Snoopy and, and all that. And my kids think that person is like the coolest person in the world. They're like, dad, can our house look like that? And I'm like, guys, that person is crazy. They're like, no, dad, that person's awesome. So the guy down the street with the crazy lights, that guy's way cooler than, than dad. But, um, you know, some of the houses have so much going on that you have to stop really to take it all in. You can't really, you can't really catch it all driving by. Um, I don't suggest you do this on a main road, but if you're like, if you're in a subdivision or a cul-de-sac or something, um, to stop by and, and, and park out front and you're kind of like, you know, checking it out. Um, I'm always like, look for someone to like come out the window and like, who's checking out my house. They're like, that's right. That's why I put these lights out there. So you look at my house. Um, but, uh, yeah, some of the houses have so much going on. You have to stop and, and check it all out. You can't really take it all, all in. And a lot of times at the crazy lit houses, there's a, there's a nativity scene, right? Which I really appreciate. Um, but it's kind of there and it's, it, it's, it's kind of been a miss of all the rest of the candy canes and the icicle lights and, and Santa. And then there's those weird, like moving, like mechanical Santas. And those are creepy. And like the reindeer. And it's just the, the nativity scene is kind of like one piece in, in the rest of it. And it's kind of, it's kind of an underwhelming piece and like an overwhelming display. You notice it last. You notice it kind of driving by on the tail end. And sometimes there's just so much going on that you can just drive right by a huge house with a ton going on. They might have a nativity scene, but you just drive by and totally miss it. And it got me thinking about that as, as I was thinking about just these people and their lights and, um, and just the nativity scene and how sometimes that can get lost and we can drive by even the craziest of houses and, and miss them is that, you know, we do that with the birth of Christ a lot of times. We, you and I, I'm not talking about our neighbors. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who believe that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. We do this and we do this with the gospel in general. 
It burdens me to think that we can all so easily drive right by this manger scene and drive right by this season and fail to see the magnitude of what that baby in that manger really meant. Because it's easy. It's easy to do. It's easy to have a heart that's dull to the magnitude of who God is and what God has done. It's easy to just drive right by. Or worse yet, to drive by the manger scene, to acknowledge it, to be so ardently like, yeah, Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And just to tip our hats to the truth of that, but to not be changed by it. For that truth to not cause us to sing like we sung earlier, glory to God in the highest. To not cry out. And so I hope as best as I can this morning to to wake us up to the magnitude of Christmas. Because frankly, the manger scene, and especially the ones that are just kind of lit, the outline of Mary and Joseph and the baby, rarely does a manger scene do that. Really grasp and depict really the weight and the magnitude of what was happening in that manger. Rarely does the sight of a baby with glowing blonde curly hair perfectly wrapped in swaddling clothes in the middle of a pretty tidy barn while still wise men and farm animals look on cause us to rejoice at the top of our lungs or even weep tears. Rarely does that. Those lifeless images fail to capture the full weight of the eternal son of God who gave up everything to seek and save the lost from sin, Satan, death, and hell. Friends, this morning we need a grander view of Christmas. We need a bigger view of God, period. We need a bigger view of this moment. I came across this quote in a book that I recently read. It says this, the gospel of which this Christmas story is a part, of which this birth is a part, The gospel is God's message of liberation from guilt, alienation, and every bondage that hinders the human race from being fruitful for and reflecting the glory of God. The good news that Jesus preached is that he, as the Lord of the cosmos, is now in the business of recapturing a runaway planet. I love that. He came to destroy the works of the devil, all of them, not merely the psychological ones that plague middle class people. And to bring the world under his saving authority. That means he came to reverse the effects of the fall as far as the curse is found. The gospel of the kingdom announces nothing less than God's intention and activity to replace the effects of the fall. Sin, guilt, sickness, hunger, injustice, oppression, poverty, bondage, dehumanization, and death with his kingdom righteousness. And his work will not be finished until his redemption covers the whole earth. That's what Christmas is about right there. It's about a cosmic work. It's huge and massive in scale. And when God came down to be with us, he didn't have visions of Christmas lit manger scenes spread all over suburbia. God came flesh to spread a kingdom that has no end. God came to this earth to spread his kingdom, his rule and reign without end. And as far as the curse is found and destroy the works of the devil. God becoming flesh was a part of a redemptive plan. A redemptive battle plan that involved the cosmos. That involved this entire earth. Something huge was happening in that manger. 
God, as he lay in that manger as a needy, helpless, weak baby, he was declaring war on sin, Satan, death, hell, and everything that plagues us. He was coming to rescue his creation from the bondage of sin's curse and the break, the stranglehold grip that our enemy had on us in this world. The manger was a war. It was a war that was motivated by love for that which was lost. It was a war for God's glory to display his power. And he displayed that glory and he displayed that power and he, and he masked this powerful attack in humility. In humility. He disguised it in humility. He disguised it in weakness. The humility of God to empty himself to take on flesh. To exchange his heavenly throne a relationship and a favorable relationship with the father that he had enjoyed in eternity past. He exchanged all of that for a place here on this earth. The humility of God to empty himself and to take on flesh for God to become a baby. The wisdom of God in this moment. The power of God in this moment. So subtle, so huge. God in that manger was executing his battle plan. A battle plan to rescue and renew all of creation. He's launching an attack. An attack on sin. Attack on Satan. An attack on all of our enemies that we can never, ever overcome in our own flesh. In our own strength. By our own religious good deeds. We needed God to do this. And this is a battle plan that was designed long ago. And we see the first glimpse of this battle plan in Genesis. When we come to Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, have already been enjoying all the benefits of a relationship with God. An unhindered relationship with God. There was nothing between them. They walked and talked with God and had relationship with him. They enjoyed that relationship with God. And they lived for his glory on the earth. They enjoyed the company of one another. And they enjoyed the creation that was created for them. It was suited for them. And they were free to roam and play and eat and, and till and bring forth fruit and vegetation and create. They were enjoying all of that. The beginning of Genesis 3 introduces a villain, a crafty reptile into this perfect scene, into this good world. And this crafty reptile sparks a conversation with the woman, with Eve. And through deceit, lies, and temptation, the serpent convinces Eve that God is not good. The serpent convinces Eve that God's holding back. He says, did God surely say you'll die? No, no, no. When you eat of that fruit, when you eat of that tree, God knows your eyes are going to be open to a world that he is just holding back from you. The lie, the temptation in the garden was that God's not good. That God's holding back. And he convinces her to live her life on her own terms. He convinces her to, to, to move past God's instruction and God's rule and just eat of that fruit. Who cares that God said that? Eat, partake, eat of the fruit. Live life on your own terms. Live life your own way, not God's way. And Eve eats from the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to eat from. And Adam is standing right next to Eve when all this goes down. She eats and hands him a piece too, and he eats as well. And everything changed in that moment. 
everything changed. All this good relationship with God, this, this continuity in this relationship that they enjoyed with one another, and all the fruits and the benefits of living in a world that reflected God's glory, all that changed in that moment. God's authority and rule and reign was established with the giving of the command not to eat. And now God's righteousness and justice need to be established in judging the breaking of this command. And rightfully so. God passes down a judgment. He passes down curses upon the world, upon the serpent, upon Eve, and upon Adam. And while cursing these three, while, while bringing down these judgments, these judgments that are, that are so necessary to uphold God's justice and righteousness, so necessary because of his character, while he's passing out these judgments, while he's passing out this curse upon the serpent, something unexpected happens. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of cursing, in the midst of tears, in the midst of sadness, we get a glimmer of light. As we read here in Genesis 3, look at what it says. The Lord God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Satan, you, you tricked Eve. You deceived Eve, and your plan was to get a whole slew of people to, to follow you and to worship you. Satan, I'm here to tell you that I'm going to put enmity between you and her. I'm going to cause strife between you and these folks that I've created. You don't get what you want. You don't get a world to worship you. I'm putting enmity between you and this woman and between your offspring and hers. And this offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This passage is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first announcement of the gospel. And here, as early as Genesis 3, we see the glimmer of the gospel. Indeed, Derek Kidner calls this the first glimmer of the gospel. Light is shining out of the darkness. In a place where there ought to be judgment and condemnation, we see light. We see grace. We see hope. This passage is also referred to as the mother promise because it speaks of a coming redeemer. The offspring, the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. This is truly an unexpected moment for grace, but it's here and it's a ray of light. Now, if you're a parent in here, you know this well. Around Christmas time, your kids hand you a Christmas list and they expect to get everything on that list. Am I right? Yeah? No? The kids hand the list and they expect to get everything on there. The kids just expect to get gifts. At Christmas time, they just assume that because they hand you that piece of paper, they're going to get everything on that list. So much so that kids feel as if they have the right to pout when they get a ton of stuff, but not just that one thing. And I just had a little moment with my five-year-old the other day, encouraging him and counseling him in a moment exactly like that. But Camden got this ton of presents, just not that one. I mean, it's crazy. Like kids are emailing their Christmas list to their parents with like website links and instructions for purchase. <laughs> like, man, I grabbed the back of something, I don't know, and just scribbled it on there with a Sharpie or 
Now it's emails and like in, instructions for, now you need to purchase this at this time because this needs to happen. And the kids just assume, they just assume that because they asked for it, they're going to get it. And it's like that with my families. My two boys, they were born in December. So birthday time is also Christmas time, which means broke time for mom and dad. I am dead broke. All right. That's why the ushers didn't even pass the basket to me in the front row. They're like, this dude's broke. So, so for my boys, Christmas time and birthday time being linked together everywhere they go, it's just birthday party here, Christmas party here, birthday and Christmas everywhere they go. They just expect to receive gifts. I don't know if you've ever been struck by how unexpected God's grace is. It's very unexpected. It shows up at the most unexpected times. I mean, even after Adam and Eve just stiff arm God, they turn their backs on him, believe the lie of the serpent. They choose their own way rather than God's a rebellion with cosmic ramifications. And in this moment, all of creation was lost and fell into corruption and even after Adam and Eve just run and hide in shame and fear and guilt, wondering, what is, what's God going to do? And rightfully so. What's he going to say? What's the judgment? What's our punishment? Even in the midst of all that, even in the midst of all that darkness, God gives the promise of a redeemer. This is remarkable. The grace of God in a moment where judgment, punishment, wrath, and condemnation were all expected. That is the message of Christmas, friends. A gift of a child to a world that doesn't deserve it. The grace of God in an unexpected moment. This is our God. He is a God of grace towards sinners who deserve just punishment. And we get to truly get a glimmer of that here in the gospel. And so if you're here and you're wondering, what's this Christianity thing about? And you're kicking the tires of this or peeking over the fence into Christianity. I'm here to tell you, it's not a list of rules. And commands that you need to obey in order for him to love you. It's the truth that we can't obey and he loves you still. It's the truth that though our sins deserve just punishment, he removes that, relents of that, and gives us grace instead. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. That's Genesis 3. We truly get a glimmer and a glimpse there. And I want you to notice that in the first mention of the scriptures about this offspring, this, this redeemer... We find language of crushing the head of a serpent. God is declaring war on this serpent in this moment. And he is promising defeat. This promised soon coming redeemer mentioned here in Genesis 3.15. Merely as the offspring or the seed of the woman. Will one day crush the head of the serpent. While at the same time being bruised. And this promise and this hope and this redeemer. Now sets the tone for the entire New Testament. Or Old Testament rather. This was the hope, the expectation, and the anticipation of God's people all the way up until the birth of Christ. This set the background for all their hope, all their eggs were in this basket. That one was promised. That one was going to come. And so what we're going to do right now, I just want to take a, 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 a few thousand feet fly over the Old Testament. As we see the unfolding as we see the development of this offspring, as we see the unfolding of this mother promise here in the Old Testament scriptures. So look with me here as we see this offspring develop. We come to find out that this offspring mentioned in Genesis 3 is further said to be the offspring of Abraham, 
through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22 says this, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God chose Abraham because God wanted to choose a people through whom to love and communicate and shine in the darkness in the world. And further, it says here that this seed, this offspring is going to be one that comes from Abraham. So here we see this develop a bit, this coming redeemer. He's not only going to crush the head of the serpent, but in doing so, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in his victory and in his defeat of the serpent. Further, we see the Old Testament unveils some more detail. That this offspring and coming redeemer, we come to find out that he will be not only a descendant of Abraham, but also of King David. Look at 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here we have this offspring's lineage. He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to be a king. This offspring, this seed is a coming king. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in doing so, he's going to establish a rule and a reign and a kingdom forever without end. Furthermore, we go on. We come to see that the prophet Isaiah gives us massive detail about this offspring. Massive detail about this seed. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we see this. For to us a child is born. Here's that seed. Here's that offspring of Genesis 3. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. This offspring will be a male. And the government, kingdom, shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and kingdom rule and reign and of peace there will be no end. He's come to bring peace with his kingdom. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see this child develop. We see this offspring unfold. He's going to be a coming king, a conqueror. His kingdom will have no end. It's going to be a kingdom of peace. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and establish his rule and reign. Isaiah gives us further vivid detail as he says in, in, in Isaiah 7 that this child will be born to a virgin. And this child's name is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So you can imagine just someone not knowing Christmas, not knowing cross, just looking at these and just anticipating and expecting this coming king who is called a mighty God, Emmanuel, God come down to be with us. Huge pieces Isaiah gives us. Isaiah also clarifies for us that not only is he a coming king and a ruler and a conqueror, he's going to set up a kingdom, but also that this seed, this offspring is going to be a suffering servant. As Isaiah 53 tells tells us that this offspring would grow up to be despised, to be rejected, that he would carry our sorrows, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, and that he would be crushed for our iniquities. And so this offspring whose heel is to be bruised, but to crush the head of the serpent, we see in Isaiah that he will be crushed for our iniquities. All this detail, all these vivid promises and prophecies, all these shapes and shadows and and minor details. When we come to the new Testament, it starts us off with the birth of Christ. 
And the birth of Christ moves us from the Old Testament shapes and shadows and prophecies to reality. It's the first chapter of Matthew. As Matthew begins to explain about the birth of this son, about the birth of this Christ child, he writes this in chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew knew exactly what the anticipating child, where he was to come from. And Matthew writes explicitly, this is the one. He's come from the line of Abraham. He's come from the line of David. This is the offspring. This is the seed that Genesis 3 spoke of. This is the one of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The son of David who's coming to establish a kingdom rule and reign that will have no end. And to show us that Jesus was the anticipated God child that the suffering servant Isaiah depicted. Matthew also wrote this in the first chapter of his gospel. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, see the, David, see the Davidic lineage again. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have the promise. The promise has come. The child, the seed, the offspring in Genesis 3 is here. He is Emmanuel. God come down to be with us. He is the son of God sent to redeem and to rescue. The Old Testament hope of God's people has finally arrived to wage war against the serpent. And it's not going to be too long before he crushes the head of this reptile. And in that victory, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and the, and the serpent will finally be defeated. And upon hearing this news and seeing this, Satan did everything he could to stop it. Everything he could. As God was waging war and had his battle plan unfold in the manger, Satan too was waging a war. In Ephesians 2, it tells us that the whole course of this world is being driven by the prince of the power of the air. From the very beginning, Satan has been very active behind the scenes trying to thwart God's promises, trying to thwart God's battle plan. Ever since God told this evil reptile that the seed of Eve would one day crush his head, he has sought to kill and get rid of that line and get rid of that seed. There's been many attempts, many attempts by Satan down throughout the Old Testament and in the past. I just want to focus in on three. Three specific ways where Satan tried to thwart God's redemptive plans. The first attack of the serpent included Jerusalem's wicked king, Herod. And we see this here unfold in in Matthew chapter 3. We read that when the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, they were following a star. And they were in search of this newborn child king. And they came directly to Herod, the king of Jerusalem at the time of Christ's birth. And they asked him, where's this newborn king? Where's this child that the, that the scripture is spoken of? Now, let's talk about these wise men really quick. What do we know about these wise men? We know this, that they came with gifts, that they came to worship Jesus, and they came way after Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were out of the manger, okay? Like way after, like almost up to two years after. 
Were there three of them? I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. Why we landed on three, I have no idea. Maybe so it could fit on top of your piano when you try to do the nativity scene. Who knows? It's like, well, there probably might have been like 15. Well, how are we going to fit that in? Like, these are going to be really expensive nativity scenes. We need to cut that number down. So, no, we don't know if there was three. We don't know if there was three. There could have been 10. We're not sure. And how we ever got to placing them in the manger, I have no idea about that at all. And I'm, this morning's not about ruining the nativity scene. I'm just here to say, like, they came nearly two years after the birth of Christ. So maybe if, like, God's convicting you about your nativity scene, you can go home, take those, take those wise men, all right, and go place them way on the other side of the house on the windowsill. <laughs> However long you would think it would take some really still figures to walk over to the, the nativity scene, two years, whatever, just other side. They weren't there. We're about being biblically right here. All right. I don't want you guys to be heretics in your nativity scene. So take those wise men and put them somewhere else. No, regardless of all that, when Herod heard of this newborn king from the wise men, he sought to kill him. He sought to kill the child. Herod was a wicked king. And we never, he, when he never got specific location of the Christ child from these wise men, he took drastic measures to protect his kingship. Herod knew exactly what the prophecies were. He knew exactly the prophecies of this newborn king who would establish a throne that would endure forever. And Herod took drastic measures to protect his throne. It's almost hard to speak of in light of everything that's going on recently. It's almost hard to speak of a period as Herod sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and he sent for the heads and to kill all the male children in that whole entire region two years or younger. A mass murder of children. Horrible. Wicked. How demonic. And let the weight of that horror just soak in. A prideful, wicked king trying to protect his power slaughters Hundreds of innocent two-year-olds and under. All to get rid of this Christ child. All to get rid of this newborn king. Gone. Herod's power was threatened by this prophesied newborn king. And he demanded the slaughter of innocent children to protect his throne. In a recent article about Herod's mass murder, Dr. Russell Moore wrote the following. Jesus was not born into a gazy, sentimental winter wonderland of sweetly singing angels and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of his manger. He was born into a war zone. And at the very rumor of his coming, Herod vowed to see him dead right along with thousands of his brothers. Satan is trying to thwart this plan. He's trying to kill this seed. He's trying to go beyond bruising of the heel. He wants to wipe this one out. We can thank God that he protected the Christ child and those gifts that the wise men brought to them when they found him. God gave a vision to those wise men and they went the other way rather than going back and telling Herod where they were. And the gifts that those wise men brought were enough to purchase the, 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 the trip to leave the place where they were and to flee. And God protected. And so when Satan's plans to kill the Christ child through Herod failed, He waited for a more opportune time. And this time he waited for a time when Jesus was older and in the desert at his weakest moment as we move to the temptation of Christ, which is the second most notable attack of the serpent on Christ. 
And we come to find out that this temptation of Christ that happened when Jesus was a young man, roughly 30 years old, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is purposeful. God wanted him here. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus became hungry. And at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came to Jesus. And the tempter offered to Jesus a a, a way of life, a plan, a trajectory of life that was much, much easier than the one that the Father had prepared before him. A much easier life. Satan is trying to thwart God's paddle plan here. And he's going back to his tricks that he pulled in Genesis 3. And we see the first temptation that, that of Christ was that Satan tempted Jesus to prove his identity. Prove who you are. Prove that you're powerful. Prove that you're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. He tempted him with comfort and food. And he tempted him to prove his identity, prove his worth, and to prove that he was God by turning stones into bread. The entire time, God's plan was to come in humility to come in grace, to come in peace. And Satan now, before the time has come, is trying to show Jesus and get Jesus to prove his power in a different way. Turn these these stones into bread. Comfort yourself. Eat. You're hungry. Second temptation. Satan tempted him to prove his identity and power once again. But this time he said, cast yourself down from here and call the angels to come and rescue you. Truly you are the son of God. They'll come and rescue you. Show me that you're powerful. Prove yourself. And the third temptation, which I have to think was one of the hardest, was Satan offered Christ the kingdom that was promised him long ago. He offered him the rule and the reign that was promised him long ago. This kingdom that he was come to establish. This kingdom without end. The same government that would be upon this, this child's shoulders. Satan offered him this kingdom as he showed him all the kingdoms and all the cities of the world. He brought him up to a high place and said, look at all of this. I'll give you all of this. And he offered him a path to assuming this kingdom that included no opposition, no suffering, no pain, and no cross. Satan told Jesus, all of these I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus do? There's a lot of correlation between Jesus' temptation here in Matthew 4 and Adam and Eve's temptation in Genesis 3. And what we come to find out about this child, what we come to find out about this offspring, is that where Adam and Eve failed and folded under the pressure of temptation, Jesus stood firm and said no. He said, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship and serve the Lord God alone. And Jesus did not fail like our first parents did. And this is such a huge victory for us. As we watch this one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent on our behalf. We see that this Jesus, this child overcame sin. He did not give in to temptation. He did not give in to this temptation or any temptation that would come across his path. Indeed, he lived a life without sin. And that sinlessness made it possible for this, this Christ child to die in our place. To die in our place for our sin on the cross. Speaking of the cross, it was at the cross that Satan launched his final attack on this child. This one promise in Genesis 3. We see Satan very, very active in and around all the events of the crucifixion. We see Satan really involved in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. As they all began to be jealous of Jesus. 
they all began to hate Jesus. And in their hearts, they became murderous toward Jesus. In their hearts, they began to spread lies about Jesus and plotted to kill him. And Jesus, on numerous occasions, said of these religious leaders, you are like your father, the devil, in that you're a liar and that you're murderers. They united on the fact that they hated him. They continually plotted to murder him. And these leaders were eventually the ones that would stir the people up and put pressure on Pilate to kill Jesus. Satan was very active in that. We also see Satan's activity in Judas as Satan infiltrated the inner circle. As Satan crosses enemy lines and he convinces one and corrupts one called Judas. And the scripture is explicitly clear to say that Satan entered into Judas to go and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and to betray him. This is where they knew to to capture him and to bind him and bring him to jail. And in the cross, Satan finally got his way. What he sought to do in Herod failed. He accomplished in the religious leaders in Judas. And in what seemed like another victory for the serpent, just like the garden, in what seemed to be a moment where the promise of Genesis 3 was threatened, where we're going beyond a bruising of the heel, this son, this child, this offspring of the woman went to the cross and he was pinned there. And he was killed and he was murdered. God's promise was seemingly threatened. It was a dark day. But I assure you, friends, that God's promise to crush the serpent's head was not threatened. Even in the seemingly victory of the serpent. John Gerstner puts it this way. Satan was majestically triumphant in this battle. He had nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime object of all his striving through all the ages was achieved. But he failed for the prophecy, which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. Thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph and battle over the son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had affected came down on him. And he realized that all this time so far from successfully battling against the almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purposes of the all wise God. And what he thought was a victory actually turned out to be the central piece of God's redemptive plan. In all Satan's efforts, all Satan's hatred, all Satan's murderous devices, all accumulated in this moment that God would use to rescue the world. Can you imagine the frustration? All attempts from Satan to thwart God's plan failed. And even though he thought it to be his greatest victory, It ended out to be the fulfillment of all the promises. And on that cross, on that cross, in a seemingly dark moment where it looked like this son, this conqueror, this king had failed. He was accomplishing that distant promise of victory and destroying the works of the devil. Christus victor is a Latin term, and it means this, Christ our victor or Christ the victorious. It's an aspect of the gospel that Christ is our victor who comes to destroy the works of the devil. Right now, for those of you who are new and maybe checking out our church, we're right in the middle of a series in 1 John. In 1 John, when we come to chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. A lot of times in the Christmas season, you'll hear this phrase. Jesus is the reason for the season. Absolutely. 
Jesus is the reason for the season. But according to God's battle plan, according to God's launch of attack on this wayward world and Satan, this one who has, it just has a stranglehold grip on all of us. The reason for the season was the works of the devil and to overcome his works. As we see, that is the reason why Jesus came to reverse the works of the curse. We see in the cross, what we saw in the manger, glory, power, and victory masked in humility. Christ crucified, publicly shamed by being hung naked on a cross, beaten, struggling to breathe, bloody, seemingly defeated. And when he breathed his last, his side punctured. And when you think of Genesis 3, you think of the, the offspring being bruised. And the crucifixion certainly seems to go beyond that. It seems to go beyond a bruising. But it was only a bruising. As this son who hung dead on a cross was taken off, he was wrapped and prepared. He was put inside the tomb of a rich man where no body ever laid. And three days later, that same body that died got up and walked out of that tomb. Delivering the final blow to crush the serpent underfoot and to earn the victory, to crush Satan and to earn a victory on our behalf. At the cross and in the resurrection, we see the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The heel of this child was bruised, but the head of the serpent was crushed. And in a fulfillment to the Genesis 22, that in you, Abraham, and in your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul, in that vein, describes the victory of Christ in Colossians 2 this way. Notice how the victory and the benefits of the cross are now ours by faith. Those who trust in Christ. Look at what Paul says. For in him... Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see that? That's more the, the theological piece of the incarnation. That is, that's akin to John's language, right? For in him, Christ, the Christ child, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is truly the God man. And you church have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We see his kingdom. We see his kingdom rule and reign here in him. You also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christus Victor. We're dead in sin through the powerful working of the resurrection. God raises it up. Our hearts are, are stone cold. They don't beat towards God. They, they hate God and run away from God. No, there's a circumcision without hands. The removal of a heart of stone, the giving of a heart of flesh. Now we worship God. The, 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 the record of debt that stood against us, these commands and these, these rules that we've broken and, and they stand outside of us to condemn us. No, Christ came and, and did away with that. He fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. Everything that plagued us, everything that had us down, everything that caused Satan to put a grip around us like this was all relinquished and released in the crucifixion. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. We see this. He triumphed over them in Christ. Christus Victor. 
The war that God waged in the manger is coming to fruition here in the cross. You know, Jesus' mission has always been to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus came to stomp the head of the serpent and to defeat him. And in that defeat, he would liberate people from captivity. Liberate people from sin, Satan, death, and hell. At the outset of Jesus' earthly ministry, he stands up in the temple. And the attendant there is holding the scroll of Isaiah. The same prophet that gave us so much vivid detail about this child to be born. The seed of this offspring in Genesis 3. And he stands up and he, and he grabs it and he goes to Isaiah 61 in the scroll and he reads it in front of everybody. He hands the scroll back to the attendant, sits down and out loud in front of everybody. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And here's the passage that he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Liberty to the captives, liberty to the oppressed, a victory that was won and offered to all nations, all nations. So much so that Jesus' death and resurrection happened 8,000 some miles away from here in Jerusalem. And this good news is coming to a church in Cedar Lake, Indiana, Northwest Indiana, Lake County. And God is calling out to receive the benefits of this life and death of this Savior. It's yours. Take it. Believe in Christ. Rejoice in him. Confess your sins and all his benefits and all the victory and forgiveness of sins and everything that he accomplished can be yours in Christ. We can be victors along with him so that we all might be blessed. Charles Wesley summarized this well in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm just going to read the whole hymn. It says this, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. How can the nations be joyful? Victory in Christ. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to this newborn king. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, the eternal Son of God. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God, come down to be with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Let life, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. This is the work of King Jesus. To crush the head of the serpent. To liberate those held captive. To transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his triumphant son. To destroy the works of the devil and to gain a victory over our greatest enemies. A victory that we could never earn on our own. We needed one to come and fight this battle on our behalf. And a victory that he indeed won on our behalf. And a victory that can be yours by faith. His victory over sin is our victory over sin by faith. 
His victory over death in the resurrection is our victory over death by faith in his resurrection. His victory over Satan is our victory over Satan by faith. And this victory is transferred to us by faith. Paul writes it this way to the church at Rome. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see that. That promise in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent. By faith in Christ, we're united with him. And all the benefits of his work, all the benefits of his victory are ours by faith. And we're victors too. His victory is credited to our account. So much so that the promise that was said of that seed, that offspring in Genesis 3, is said of us in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet, under my feet. In Christ, I have victory. By faith in him. The promise of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in Christ. And we celebrate that birth two days from now. Do not let the magnitude of what happened on that day pass you by. Stop. Pause. Who cares about the quiche? Who cares about the buffalo chicken dip? Who cares about the iTunes gift card for that person coming on Christmas Eve that you just found out about today. Who cares about all that? Christ came. Christ came to win a victory on our behalf. So we rejoice. We rejoice this Christmas. God's unexpected grace in the face of our sin to give us the gift of a son when we deserve punishment. To give us the, to give us the gift of a, a victorious son when we deserve condemnation. God became flesh to destroy the works of the devil. And to rescue you. Let's pray. God, thank you. And we're thankful in Christ. As we stand and we look at the magnitude of his work. We come to see this unexpected grace. This unexpected son. God, you did not give us what we deserve. But held that back. Laid it on your son. And you gave us the gift of a victorious seed a victorious child god we see your wisdom in all the scriptures here we see your plan that started from long ago god you are wise truly we say as a church glory to god in the highest god i pray for someone here that thinks of christianity as as just purely moralism or or attending church or doing good May they see the magnitude of God's love in the face of their sin to save and rescue them, though they deserve to be judged. Your grace, your love, your mercy. God, may we be changed by that. May we be rocked by that. May we leave from this place changed with hearts that swell with worship. Help us in that, God. Help us to not be dull of heart towards your work. In Jesus' name, amen.